0: You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit CrossingParagold.com. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you that it's such good news to us approaching your throne with confidence can feel very foreign to us that's exactly what we need i confess i'm much more often want to approach you like a kid who's done something wrong like with my head hung low shamefully walking in your presence i come to you like the prodigal son came to you with with you know all my excuses and my, my pleas that i'll do better but the truth of your word is that your throne is a throne of grace. It's the source of mercy. And you want to help us in our time of need. And so I say with the worship song, Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. So would you be with us this morning as we hear from your word. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh God, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. You can be seated. So, I'm going to make a statement that, as a uh, lifelong Atlanta Braves fan, which by the way, we've had three of those on the stage this morning, uh, as a lifelong Atlanta Braves fan, I do not like. And I know that we live here in Cardinal baseball country, and you're also not going to like it either. The New York Yankees are the greatest sports franchise of all time. I mean, it's true. The, the St. Louis Cardinals and the Boston Red Sox are number two and number three in the number of World Series that they've won at 20 combined, and that's still seven less than the Yankees. The Yankees won 20 World Series from 1923 to 1962. Could you imagine like being like a teenager in the 1920s and growing up with the Yankees just dominating for 40 years? You had guys like Babe Ruth, Mickey Mantle, Joe DiMaggio, like too many to name. And they're the greatest franchise ever. Therefore, I hate them because of that. There's debates that, that, that run from baseball teams to Michael Jordan versus LeBron to your opinion of what's the greatest truck brand to what's the best donut in town. And I'll go ahead and let you know, like, I, this is probably an offense to people in Paragould, but it's not Batten's. I'm, I'm learning. <laughs> hey, all right. I am learning to be more gracious in my opinions, especially on staff, and, and, and how I share them with people. But we like to debate the greatest. And the, the the author of Hebrews is kind of like Stephen A. Smith on ESPN as he's debating how Jesus is the greatest of all time. He is the goat. Like, he's greater than the angels. And for the the, the audience that he's writing to, they, they saw that the angels were just the way that God would reveal himself to people throughout the Old Testament. And so to, to hear that Jesus is greater than the angels would like kind of set them back on their heels a little bit. Then he moves into chapter 3 and the, the author goes into how Jesus is greater than their hero Moses. His audience is tempted to go back to the law of Moses' time and again for their righteousness. So the, the author needs them to hear that while Moses was a faithful servant and the law is good, Jesus is greater. Moses was a faithful servant, but Jesus is the son, and the son is greater than the servant. And so here as we end chapter 4, the author is about to begin a lengthy argument about how Jesus is the great high priest. He is the goat of priests. And now, this morning we're actually not going to spend a ton of time in what it means for Jesus to be a priest, or certainly the great high priest, because for the several weeks ahead of us after Easter, Uh, after the holy spirit conference like that's what the 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 author is going through over and over and over again including if you look a little bit later in chapter five this mysterious person named melchizedek um he's going to spend a lot of time talking about them so this morning i want to spend the portion of our time in the end of chapter four and just these short three verses and we're going to see two exhortations that lie in these three verses the first exhortation it says let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess and the second exhortation is found in verse 16 where it says let us approach god's throne of grace with confidence now i wanted to make a joke about how it says let us and that sounds like lettuce but i'm not going to do that i'm not going to make a food joke this morning okay so let's just jump into chapter 14 or chapter 4 verse 14 the author says therefore since we have a great high priest who's ascended into heaven Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. I want you to remember that this letter, which feels simply kind of like a sermon manuscript, was originally meant to be read or heard in one sitting. We break it down section by section to expound upon it because of there's cultural differences. There's uh, matters of like the Old Testament that we just don't catch all of his references. And we we need to break it down so that we can understand what he's saying. But in its original context, this was meant to be read all the way through in one sitting. And so much like my sermon, hopefully is connected from beginning to end and hopefully has some clear connections in the middle and references back to statements, this author... Is writing a sermon that does the same. And he refers back to himself and he builds on his argument throughout his letter. So, like in a sermon, this would be what's known as a transition point, a transitional statement. We see the author is building on what he's already stated. He spent a good deal of chapters one to three talking about how Jesus is the Son of God. He's not an angel, he's the Son. He's not a servant like Moses, he is the Son. He also brings up a prior argument in this little section, a, a warning to not drift away when he restates this exhortation to hold firmly to the faith that we profess. It's like being in a rushing river and you stereotypically fall into a river and what's ahead of you every single time. If you ever fall in a river, 50 yards ahead, there's always a waterfall. If you've ever seen a movie, you fall in the river, there's a waterfall. If you're gonna drift, you're gonna fall uh, to your death. And so he says, hold firmly to something that can save you. So there's a branch hanging out over the water. You grab onto the branch so you don't go over the waterfall. But the difference is, like Tim Keller says, the strength, it's not the strength of your faith. It's not how, f- how firmly you hold to this thing. It's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. You see, strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith In a strong branch. So let's see if you can imagine this. Mr. Justin McGarity, he's a big, strong guy, right? Imagine he's on the stage up here and I'm down on the floor and he decides he's got enough faith in me that he's going to swan dive off the stage and expect me to catch him. That is strong faith in a weak branch. Because A, I don't think I can and if I tried, we would both just get hurt and therefore B, I'm just moving out of the way, and he's going to face dive onto the floor. But if the tables were turned, if Justin came up here and I swan-dived off the stage, I'm pretty confident that I have strong faith in a strong branch. And so it's not about how strong your faith is. That's not what the author is talking about here. It's about how strong our Jesus is. It's not about how faithful you are. It's about how faithful he was. You see, the author continues after this statement of holding firm to the faith that we profess to show you who it is that you're having faith in. So in verse 15, he says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who's been been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Previously, back in Hebrews chapter 2, he said, For this reason, Jesus had to be made like us. Fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. You see how a, a good preacher basically just says the same thing over and over again using slightly different words. The author, over and over throughout this letter, wants you to see your own weaknesses. He wants you to know that it's okay for you to acknowledge your weaknesses. And I I think because of the particular emphasis on Jesus' sinlessness, he wants you to see that Jesus knows that you will fail in temptation. You will fail in your weaknesses. You see, like you, Jesus suffered. He felt real things. Like you, Jesus was disappointed by people. Like you, he experienced loneliness. Like you, he experienced loss because it seems like his dad, Joseph, seems to have died at an early age. Maybe like you, Jesus was misunderstood by his family early in his ministry. I, I sometimes would doubt that Jesus really understood the temptations and the, the, um, the weaknesses that I have because he was perfect. I mean, how could he really empathize with me? How, how could he have been tempted just like me, right? But then I remembered that he went out into the wilderness and he had Satan himself tempting him with power and prestige. I mean, if if I was offered a tenth of what Satan was offering Jesus, I would have fallen. If I was offered 1% of what Jesus was offered by Satan, I would have fallen. But because Satan was offering Jesus a real physical kingdom and yet he held firm to, the, to, to knowing that God is the source of, of all life. Because of the suffering, he felt the emotions that you and I felt, and so he can empathize with you in your weakness. There's been a bit written about the difference between sympathy and empathy uh, in, in the recent years. Both have their places to be sure, but some have said that when a person is sympathetic, they may give helpful advice or look upon someone with pity. They often feel relieved that they're not in the same struggle, and they ignore triggers or difficult feelings that arise from the situation. The person struggling may not feel listened to or heard. Sympathy sometimes has its place, but oftentimes it makes a person not feel heard. Empathy is different, though. Empathy is defined as the feeling that you understand and share another person's experiences and emotions, or the ability to share someone else's feelings. The difference between sympathy and empathy can often lie in the difference between relating to someone with your head or your heart. Like, I, I, I know what you went through. I see that. Like, I logically understand. I'm sorry for you. Versus, I know what you went through. Like, if someone in this church experienced a loss of a, a parent really young, like, I can empathize with you. Because I've experienced the same. I can empathize with you. I know what you're feeling. I can sit with you in it. Jesus understands your pain. He understands your weaknesses. He empathizes with you because he felt the same. He knows that this is a hard life to live. You're not alone in your weaknesses. In fact, in Hebrews 5, uh, 8 through 9, down below, we have one of the more peculiar passages in the New Testament, in my my opinion. It says in verse 8, Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect or complete, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey in him. The suffering that Jesus went through is what made him worthy. The suffering Jesus went through is what made him good. The suffering Jesus went through is what made him the source of Of eternal life the suffering jesus went through is what makes him able to empathize you with you in your suffering one of the songs we sang this morning i can't remember the exact lyric but it said like i'll I'll praise you in the suffering as i know that you're there with me like by the way when our worship leaders pick out these songs they're prayerfully picking out songs that connect to our sermon and those two opening songs connect so well with the sermon I know that Jesus is a good Savior because his perfection leads him to grace and mercy rather than judgment. I know that I'm in need of a Savior because the slightest good deed that I might do will lead me to self-righteous judgment over others. But mercy and grace is exactly what defines the goodness of Jesus. This is the faith that we're called to hold firm to. This is the very a common exhortation throughout the New Testament. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, be watchful, stand firm in your faith, be strong. He says in 2 Corinthians 1, we work for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Galatians 5, Paul says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit to a yoke of slavery. Ephesians 6, Paul says, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Philippians 4 says, therefore my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. Second Thessalonians 2, so then brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. This exhortation to stand firm is pretty common in the New Testament, which lends us to believe what? We're tempted to not stand firm pretty, pretty often. We're tempted to fall away Pretty often, We're tempted to reach for a different branch pretty often, so we're called to stand firm in the faith that we profess. We stand firm in a gospel message that Jesus was made like us, and because he did not sin in his life and his death, he's become the source of eternal salvation. So that leads us to our second exhortation in verse 16. It says, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Confidence. There's a real brief definition of confidence that just says a firm trust, which stuck out to me this week because of the first exhortation, having a a holding firm to your faith. I don't believe this passage is telling you to just strut in the presence of God, not thinking about your sin. Because, First, we see in verses 12 to 13 uh, that God sees everything. This is one of the the most popular passages in the Bible. We're barely going to touch it today, but it says in verse 12, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him who we must give an account. That verse, standing alone, just reading that area right there, those two verses, can fill me with fear. If my life is laid bare before the Father, before the one to whom I must give an account, even the purest parts of my life are but dirty rags in front of his holiness. And here's the thing: i got a lot more unpure parts of my life than I have pure parts of my life. So when my life is laid bare before him, I feel like I don't have a hope if all I have is these two verses. Because you see, I have a, a common tendency to want to do things my own way, to, to go into the throne room of God, not to, to receive grace, not to receive mercy, but to take something that's not mine, to take the throne. I want to sit on the throne. I want to be in charge. I know the way to do life better than God knows how to do life. I know how to, to, like, if I was in charge of things, like, my mom would not have died in her 40s. If I was in charge of things, you might not have lost a kid. If I was in charge of things, you wouldn't be suffering depression right now. I feel like I know how to do things better, which is the definition of sin. And so I hear that verse and I feel shame. Do you feel that too? I mean, some people actually say even saying the word shame can instantly cause us to start feeling differently within our bodies. We start physically feeling the shame, just as that word is said. Brene Brown defines shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we're flawed and therefore unworthy of love, belonging and connection. Now, we would actually say that's toxic shame. Like, there is a a healthy shame, like a a right-sizing shame, but this is our our object today anyway, is toxic shame that we feel on ourselves. You see, shame thrives in secrecy, in silence, and judgment. Whatever shame you're feeling, you feel like, I need to keep it secret. I don't need to talk about it, because if I do, I'm going to be judge but hebrews 4 says that nothing is hidden from god's sight therefore nothing's in secret everything will be laid bare before him therefore there will be no silence about your shame and that there will be judgment in the end except that the the truth of hebrews 4 tells us that for those who love jesus who see him as their lord who obey his commands that judgment is a judgment full of grace and mercy I mean, do you ever feel like because you've done something wrong, you need time and space between you and God for your shame to kind of like flame out a little bit, to go away on its own? It's like a a terrible application of the cliche, time heals all wounds. I I, I screwed up and I just need to stay away for a while. I screwed up so I can't read my Bible this morning because clearly like, my heart's not in it. I, I, I screwed up, so I'm going to see a prayer tonight because I, I just I can't face God today. I need tomorrow. I drifted, so I need to get my act together before I return to, to attend a church service. Maybe i got to watch online for a month before I come back in person. I, I failed, so I can't use my gifts for God's glory right now. If you're believing that there's a, a set amount of time before your sin, before you're allowed to run back to the Father, you're believing that Jesus' blood is only good enough if you've got your act together. You're believing the lie that Jesus' blood is only good enough if there's been time. You're believing a lie. But then maybe your shame actually looks a little different. Maybe when you hear me say the word shame, you don't feel bad about yourself, but you feel proud. Maybe your shame looks a little bit more like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. In your view of how God judges the world, you believe that in your perfection, you're made right with God. But Brown continues, she says, shame is the birthplace of perfectionism. Perfectionism is not striving to be our best or working toward excellence, but is externally driven by a simple but potentially all-consuming question, what will people think? Perfectionism is a self-destructive and addictive belief system that fuels this primary thought that if I look perfect, if I live perfectly, if I work perfectly, and I do everything perfectly, I can avoid or minimize the painful feeling of shame. Perfectionism and shame both fear judgment and rejection. So the cure to both of these is empathy. And empathy only really matters if it's coming from the right person, um, last year on the anniversary of my mom's death, I shared a thing, typically do every year, uh, about how I miss my mom, right? And I get some responses that set me off because someone's trying to empathize a little too much. It's uh, so like uh, a guy that I grew up to, next door neighbor, and he did love my mom, like they're, they're, that's true. But he would say something like, oh man, I miss your mom every single day. My like, dude, it's been eight years. I don't miss my mom every single day how do you miss my mom every single day? Why do I now feel bad because you miss my mom more than I miss my mom? But then I had a friend, like my college roommate, who texts me, and all he says is, man, your mom was a special lady. The short time I had with her, I really, really enjoyed, and I'm sorry that today's a hard day. He empathized with me. Like, he got in it with me. Like, he felt it. The other guy, it felt more superficial. Like, I got to say the right thing. This is going to make you feel better that I miss your mom every single day. That can't be true. Whew, I got off my thing. I don't know where I'm at now. <laughs> uh, so we're exhorted to approach God's throne with confidence. Not prideful strutting, but confident in what? In the true mercy and grace of Jesus. As the song says, you need to leave your shame at the door. And I'm going to add, leave your perfectionism at the door. It's not welcome here anymore. And so with the the short time we have remaining, I simply want to point out a few quick ways that you can hold firm to this faith. And I want to encourage you to approach God with confidence today. And probably first is simply the acknowledgement that you need to have that we live in a fallen world you're going to experience suffering. You're going to to feel your weakness. You're going to be tempted. You're going to fail. To pretend that the Christian life is like coasting is unbiblical. I dare say that if you feel like in your Christian walk, you're just coasting through this life, then you actually may be drifting down the river towards that waterfall. The first thing you need to do is wake up. See that until Christ returns again, all of this life is a battle. And so what are your weapons in that battle? First, I see from Jesus' temptation in the wilderness that he used scripture to battle temptation. Even when scripture was taken out of context and used against him, he knew this word good enough to to continue to battle using scripture to fight against temptations. Because a, a lot of people want to use this book to harm you need to know what it says because someone might say something like the bible says xyz and you're like well shoot i guess it does you need to have this word in your heart read it memorize it you can start with a short bit like this passage right here if you're struggling to believe that that jesus is good enough memorize this that therefore we have a great high priest who's ascended into heaven jesus the son of god let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with us in our weaknesses. We have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are, and yet he did not sin. Let us then approach the throne, God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. When you're struggling, read that to yourself. Write that down, have it in your wallet, have it in your purse, put it on your phone, Read that to yourself when you feel tempted. Second, I see that when faced with temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus committed himself to prayer. If you ever feel like you're just praying the same thing over and over again, and like, what's the point? I just keep saying the same thing over and over again. When the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was there for hours, and it only tells us he prayed one prayer over and over and over again be persistent we've talked about prayer a lot over the past several months be persistent in prayer when that temptation comes, when the weakness comes when the struggles come pray pray like that let that be your knee-jerk reaction to pray third we also see in the garden that jesus had a community he he shared with them with his three closest disciples that his soul was overwhelmed with sorrow he was authentic with them He let down his guard so that they could pray with him and for him. And if you've ever felt like your community has let you down in a time of need, no community has let someone down like the disciples let Jesus down that night. And still, he knew that the way to stand firm is to not stand alone. And finally, we see an exhortation to stand firm way back in the Old Testament in 2 Chronicles 20. And Jared has shared on this passage a few times in the last few months, and it's blown my mind see, the king of, of Judah, Jehoshaphat, he's surrounded by his enemies. And God says this amazing statement. He says, you will not need to fight this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. Then he and all the country praised God. And the next day they went out to battle armed, not with swords, but with songs. And we sing when we're faced with temptation. Sing songs that remind you of God's grace. Sing songs that remind you of his faithfulness. Sing songs that remind you of the mercy that Jesus displayed for you on the cross. Sing songs of the hope of the resurrection and the power that it gives you over sin today. When you're overwhelmed with fear and anxiety, you can sing, I'm no longer a slave to fear. When you're feeling like God doesn't love you, you can sing, I'm a son of God and my soul is at peace. When you're facing temptation, you can sing, Jesus is better, make my heart believe. When your soul is in despair and sadness, you can sing, great is thy faithfulness, O Lord, unto me. We need to have our hearts prepared for battle because we face an onslaught from the enemy day after day. As we come to a close, I want you to hear from Edward Welch. There's a whole book that I read as a a daily devotional on being priests, which we're going to get into later. He says, we need a priest because our sin separates us from God and the priest serves as a mediator. It was not always this way. In the beginning, man walked with God in the garden. Then Satan got Adam and Eve to question God's goodness. He said, sin's not bad. Rest in your own understanding. You'll like it. God's not good. Sin is good. And after the fall, Satan's lie to us is that you are, Are irredeemably bad, and God could and would never forgive you or love you. You're not lovable. This is a variation on his theme that God's not good, but it has more bite to it. Shame replaces communion and fellowship, and everything is injected with hopelessness. We're fooled into thinking that we can never regain what's been lost. That's what we're up against. That's the lie that you're up against every single day that you are unlovable. But the truth of the gospel is that Jesus has come to set you free. You are lovable. You are loved by the God of the universe. Don't believe Satan's lies, because it's been the exact same strategy from the very beginning. A few weeks ago, we sang a song called, How Can It Be? And the lyrics struck me strongly that morning. It says, I'm guilty, ashamed of what I've done, what I've become. These hands are dirty, I dare not lift them up to the Holy One. But then it continues with the truth. You plead my cause. You right my wrongs. You break my chains. You overcome. You gave your life to give me mine. You say I'm free. How can it be? In the passage that Jesus quoted in the synagogue uh, that got him into hot fire, which was his first claim to be a Messiah, in Isaiah 61, he quotes this. He says, instead of your shame, you'll receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance and so you will inherit a double portion in your land. Everlasting joy will be yours.